so when I came uh, to the church conference that day, I did not anticipate how the day would end. I didn't foresee spending the last session sobbing by myself in the church lobby, overcome with awe and beauty, not grief. But that is where I found myself by the time the day was over. The moment was a, whew, sorry. Going for the smooth move, but I did not pull it off. So this moment I'm describing, thank you, was a culmination of a series of experiences I'd been having over the last decade or so. There were prayer times when many people had been praying over me and then telling me, I think God has made you to be, and they would always say one of the two things, a trailblazer or a pioneer. It felt a little bit cliche by the like sixth or seventh time it happened. Um, there was the wrestling I'd engaged in as a young Christian, coming to faith in the mid-90s as a theater student, struggling, knowing the church wasn't a safe place for my gay friends and mentors. Um, I'd sensed at the time God acknowledging the problem, but telling me in the mid to late 90s there wasn't yet an answer that I needed to wait that I should put it on the shelf for a season. And I did so, but I lived in discomfort and dissonance, especially when I started to sense for myself a pull away from a vocation in theater and music towards spiritual leadership, specifically dreaming about becoming a pastor that would start a spiritual community myself. And that dreaming brought me to a female pastor named A.D who was starting to invest in me, inviting me to consider modeling a journey on her own. And I'd followed her to this conference in Boston to hear her speak, to meet other folks who felt compelled to create spiritual spaces like the kind I felt stirred by. I'd even sensed earlier at this very conference that perhaps Berkeley, California might be the place that all of this would come to pass. And I felt equal parts excited and completely terrified at the idea. And then the evening session came and Pastor Charles Park, the pastor of a young church in Manhattan, got up to speak and he began to share how he was just starting to think a bit differently about what it might mean to include gay people in the church. And something happened in me. I had never heard a pastor name this. And all of a sudden, I felt shivers run throughout my body. My breathing quickened. And before too long, I knew if I did not exit the room, I would be loudly bawling in front of the whole group. And so I got out as quickly and as quietly as possible. I made my way to the lobby, and it was like the dam just broke. Sobs came from a deep, deep place I let them roll through my body. I think I'd been holding them back for 10 years. And as I did, I had this picture that was so vivid in my mind's eye. In this picture, I was in front of an altar. I was there with Jesus. And as the scene played out, I was bringing every one of my LGBTQ friends, mentors, loved ones through the years 
each and every one of them I had known and cared about, I brought to this altar, and Jesus threw his arms around them, and he hugged them, and he blessed them, and he spoke words to them of love and affirmation and belonging. And in that moment, as I took in that scene, a set of words rung through my head and heart that felt like the divine speaking right to me, saying, Leah, it's, it's time. It's time to take this issue off the shelf. We're going to go there now. And I also know you've heard you're a trailblazer, and you think that's about being a female church starter pastor. And yes, but I need you to know that this right here, this picture, this space I want to create, this is going to be bigger. And as I sobbed in that church lobby that night, I absorbed those words, and I knew they rung true for me. I cursed under my breath as I thought about all the possible implications. But I also knew that whatever this hope was that was taking hold of me, I had to follow it all the way forward. So I start with that personal story as I begin this third and final teaching in the series I've been calling Liberating Return. And through this series of these three teachings, I've been sharing some insights from the sabbatical I was gifted with this summer in the hopes they might be instructive to all of you as well. So each of these looks at a different element of a, of a kind of return, returns that I was practicing over the sabbatical season and that I'm now trying to continue practicing in the season in which I've returned to this work of cultivating spiritual community here at Haven. So the first was the return to self, reconnecting with the deepest parts of my own being. The second was the return to relationships, making space to draw my attention in a more intentional way to the significant people in my life, particularly those in my own household. And today I wanna to focus on what was for me the third kind of return I noted during the sabbatical, a return that ultimately has compelled my coming back into this space. And it's a return I hope as a community we might engage together in a real way in the season to come. And I'm calling that the return to purpose. The return to purpose. Now that moment in that Boston church lobby, that was a significant one. It was a significant moment of purpose for me. But y'all, it took place 15 years ago or so. A lot has come to pass since then. I went from having one kid at the time to three. I went to seminary. I moved from Chicago where I was living at the time to Iowa. And then eight years ago, I came here. I did apply my energy towards pioneering an alternative spiritual community. And eight years later, this thing exists. It's still standing, right? But all of that pioneering, it's come with its share of costs along the way, as pioneering usually does. There have been the losses of relationships, many, which have been significant. First, it was the folks in the churches I used to call home, but couldn't remain a part of if I was going to live into this Haven project. There's been the moments it, there's been the people who've come and gone from this Haven 
community as well. There have been the moments it felt like things were coming together, and then the moments everything seemed to fall apart. There's been a global pandemic, and all that that has disrupted. There have been changes in terms of my own family's participation through the years. Most notably recently, my husband Jason's journey away from engagement in spiritual community. And so given the gift of some time this summer, 12 weeks away from this work of Haven, it seemed like this was an important opportunity to pause and take stock and consider what this work is still about, at least for me. If church planting was the call in some ways, I guess you could say I accomplished the initial goal. A community's been founded, it existed, even with my absence this summer, so maybe the work is done. Why still do it? As I've been thinking about this theme of connecting with and returning to purpose, there's a story from the Hebrew Bible that came to mind for me this week. It's a story that comes from late in the Hebrew Bible's narrative arc. It's during the season in which many of the Jewish people no longer actually live in Israel. So the Babylonian exile, that took people um, all the way to Babylon. And now that's ended because the Persians conquered Babylon. And some people went back, but not everyone returned to Israel. So many Jewish people actually stayed in Babylon or what became Persia. And it's from that setting that we receive this story. A story centered around a Hebrew woman named Esther. Now Esther is a young woman who's been elevated from commoner to queen of Persia after winning an epic beauty contest. Her predecessor, Queen Vashti, lost the title after refusing to parade around but probably naked seemed to be the request uh, for her husband's dinner party. And in the wake of Vashti's temerity, the king fires her as queen and starts the ultimate beauty quest, adding young women to his harem from across the empire, telling his advisors to pick all the most gorgeous girls and bring them into his harem, and he would elevate the favorite to wear the royal turban and Esther becomes the lucky girl. Now, I just have to name, this is a story that is deeply steeped in patriarchy, right? That is real. It is so much about women's um, sexual attractiveness is ultimately what brings Esther to a place of prominence. So we just note that. Now, of course, as the story goes, neither the king nor his advisors realize that Esther is Jewish. She had followed her uncle Mordecai, who was her guardian, his advice to keep her lineage a secret. But a few years into her reign as queen, a situation arose that puts her secret to the test. So the king's right-hand man, an official named Haman, he, it turns out he had come to hate the Jewish people. And he'd persuaded the emperor to endorse his plot to have them destroyed. Letters were sent throughout the empire that on a certain day, people throughout Persia are ordered to attack their Jewish neighbors, to actually massacre them, and to take their belongings for themselves. It's a truly atrocious order. But the emperor shows pretty much no resistance in endorsing Haman's evil plan. 
which is where Esther comes into play. As the edict is announced, understandably, the Jewish communities are terrified. And Uncle Mordecai sends word to Esther and begs her to approach her husband, the king, and compel him to call off the genocide. But Esther has a problem. She knows that though she is queen, her power is limited because patriarchy, right? And so in this palace, the king actually has the right to execute anyone who approaches him that he hasn't called for. And he hasn't called for Esther in over a month. He's got a, he's got a big harem. All right, so he has not called for her. Now he has the right to waive his execution for anyone who approaches him. He can extend the royal scepter, but there is no guarantee he would do so, right? She knows, Esther knows this man doesn't always take well to women he sees challenging him in some way. She saw what happened with her predecessor. Esther sends word to Mordecai, she's sorry. There's really nothing she can do. And here's where we get to the heart of the story. I'm gonna read for us the final verses of the fourth chapter of the book of Esther. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Now, if you know the story, Esther follows through. She takes the risk. She approaches the king. He extends his scepter to her. Eventually, because of her courage, her people are spared. But none of that positive outcome would have taken place if it wasn't for what we just read. At the center of this passage, and in fact, the center of the whole book of Esther, I think is a bold question. It's not a statement, it's not a declaration, but it's a question that's provocative enough to pivot the whole story. Who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this? Who knows? Might it be, is it possible you are here for such a time as this? With that question, Mordecai is beckoning his niece to consider whether her life might possibly be about more than simply the circumstances she has found herself in. Yes, there have been factors that beyond her control that thus far for a woman of her means has worked in her favor. But perhaps there's something more meaningful to her life beyond the luxuries of the palace or the challenges of staying on the good side of an unpredictable tyrant husband. With this question, Esther, and I would say all of us, are invited to consider 
whether the circumstances in our lives might be a part of a larger purpose. Might our little lives be a part of something with a bigger impact? Might they even be a part of what God may be doing in the world? It's a question I think that resonates with what Jeannie was talking to with the kids today, right? Something beyond what we can see. It's a question of faith. The story of Esther holds a special place in the life of Jewish communities still today. The Feast of Purim, which the book establishes in the end, is still observed in lots of Jewish congregations. And in the festival celebration, the community every year delights in retelling the Esther story in dramatic fashion. But interestingly, centuries ago, there was actually a debate amongst Jewish uh, scholars and rabbis, as well as many Christian scholars, as, as to whether this book should actually be included in the Hebrew Bible. It was questioned in both circles as to whether it should be considered canon. And the primary reason many argued against including Esther in the Bible was because they thought throughout the whole book, there's no direct mention of God. Yahweh, as a character, never appears. God is not an active player in the story, some would say. God does not appear to Esther in a burning bush like we see with Moses. Esther doesn't hear a voice like calling her name as, as we see with Samuel. There's no affirming words booming from heaven with doves flying down like we see with Jesus. But does that mean the divine's not present in Esther's story? Or might Esther be an example of the way I think God is actually often most present to us, inviting us into the possibility that there are purposes worth living into beyond our own needs or sense of security. In the story, Mordecai's question, it shifts things. Mordecai's question moves Esther from self-preservation to selfless courage. Mordecai's question rings of the sacred, and that sacred ring has power. And empowered with the hope that the divine might be with her, Esther moves out into places of risk and gets to play a significant role in saving not just herself, but her whole people. Perhaps this is why, despite some people's skepticism, this story remains in the Jewish and Christian Bibles. Because Esther's story reminds us that God is in the discovery that we can be a part of something bigger. God is in the hope that we can make different choices, ones that have implications beyond us. And as we do, we might have the opportunity to participate with the divine in something truly restorative and healing. God is in the possibility that we might be where we are for such a time as this. In my own life, I've now been on a multi-decade journey of following the breadcrumbs of possible sacred invitations and trying to live into this work of cultivating inclusive, progressive, Jesus-centered spiritual community. A lot of the journey has felt meandering or stalled out 
or perhaps in that frustrating rhythm of two steps forward and one step back. But there have also been these moments, moments of timeliness that have resonated in deep ways, inviting me or all of us as a community, whoever's in the room, in an Esther-like way to ask, might we be here for such a time as this? So our long journey of preparing, including that moment in Boston to come to Berkeley, that finally culminated in Jason and I and the kids arriving in the summer of 2014 without any legit connections of folks we would actually start something with. But as fortune would have it, a handful of other households relocated to the East Bay that same summer from churches I was connected to, churches who were also wanting to explore new frontiers and how we gather and who we include. Two couples were referred by that same Manhattan pastor who'd been speaking when I fled the room almost a decade before. And so through strange synchronicity, within a few months of landing in Berkeley, there was a team, nine adults, a handful of kids, and a desire to build a spiritual community that could be a safe home for all kinds of people, including our LGBTQ family and friends. And several months later, not, not half a year, the Supreme Court made same-sex marriage legal nationwide. And our fledgling little inclusive community still meeting in my living room, celebrated fully, feeling this moment of resonance between what we were doing and what was happening in our nation. Might we be here for such a time as this? Nearly a year later, our community was outgrowing the house, and we determined it was time to try taking things to the next level. So we launched public services on Easter 2016. Several months after that, the world turned upside down as Donald Trump was elected to the presidency. In shock, the night after the election, many folks gathered again in my living room for a time of lament, not just for what we had taken place the night before, but because we were already starting to awaken to what it might mean. We felt the toxic tangle with white evangelicalism that had just played a major role in elevating Trump, knowing that many of us had emerged from church systems that supported him, as well as the idols of patriarchy, white supremacy, heteronormativity, Christian nationalism, capitalism, and more that he was emblematic of. We started that night a process of coming to understand that to live into this dream of cultivating inclusive community also meant confronting our own baggage, smashing the idols, as we would come to say, that might be a part that we might also be a part of letting the sacred beauty that had been constrained by them be released and flow free. In the dawning era of Trump, might we be here for such a time as this? I don't have time this morning to chronicle all the other synchronous moments that have taken place through the years but I do want to end with what was stirring in me this summer, at least a bit of it, as I stepped away from the work of Haven 
and had time to pause and discern and reflect about where I find purpose here today. Once again, I couldn't help but notice my own responses to the headlines in the news. There were a number of events that stirred my thoughts and hearts this summer, from the horrific school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, to the January 6th hearings, which I did watch all the way through, to the slew of conservative rulings by the Supreme Court, setting back gun control, climate legislation, and more. But perhaps no other moment felt so momentous as the announcement that the federal right to legal abortion was being repealed with the overturning by the Supreme Court of Roe versus Wade. Now, before I go further, I need to take a breath. And I need to say that what I want to share here is extremely personal. And I'm not making any pronouncements about Haven's ethic on any issues. Please do not hear anything I have to say in that way. I am simply sharing a bit of my own personal response this summer and the process I am in in understanding what it means, at least for me. And I do so with a bit of fear and trembling. When the news first came out about the overturning of Roe versus Wade, I found myself somewhat at a loss for how to engage with the divine. On one hand, I felt enormous personal grief at the news. I also felt acutely that I had an un underdeveloped theology when it comes to the questions of abortion and choice. In a world where the right to abortion seemed secure, it wasn't something I felt the need to explore. I knew that the issue was more complex than many anti-abortion Christians were willing to admit, including Christians in the tradition perhaps from which I have emerged. I knew that I disagreed with weaponizing any Christian ethic and imposing it on other people. But as a person of faith, I also couldn't look at the issue as purely medical without any ethical or spiritual components to it. And so in my wrestling, I turned to my, who I've come to connect with as my divine mother. And I had a moment of wrestling and praying, and there I felt the mother's presence ring in my heart with words that felt very true, at least for me. Women's bodies are sacred. Women's choices are sacred. Women's bodies are sacred. Women's choices are sacred. And I identify as a woman and I have a female body. And hearing those words, I resonated with the truth that it is my body, it is the wisdom within my body that has often been the space that I have most deeply connected with truth and with the divine. And I'm grateful for that. And so in that moment, I felt again a sacred sense of purpose 
In this conversation, those who are against abortion often speak of the sacredness of life. And I do not dispute the truth that life is sacred, including life that has yet to be born. But that is not the only space of sacredness in the conversation. It was in seminary, in a class on ministry in the area of illness and disability, that I was first introduced to the term, the ministry of presence. But the language describes what I've experienced through the years as some of the most beautiful, powerful, sacred moments in my life. The ministry of presence recognizes that sometimes, particularly in life circumstances that are unexpected and challenging, what we need more than words, more than theology, more than policy, more than Bible verses or prescriptive spiritual practices, is simply the presence of a caring human being who is willing to sit in the questions, to sit in the uncomfortable, in the pain, in the uncertainty with us, to be truly present with us in uncertainty, pain, and discernment around what comes next. And in those places of courageous presence with one another, I believe the presence of the divine is also embodied and enacted. He who we call Emmanuel, she who we call Emmanuela, God is with us, comes to life. Through the years, I've had the privilege and the awesome responsibility of sitting in those places of presence with folks. And those moments are some of the most holy I have ever lived. Moments when the fresh, heartbreaking diagnosis is being absorbed. Moments after the intimate relationship has been forever altered. Moments where the dream seems to have dissolved. I've had the privilege of loving folks and holding space with others inviting the divine to show up in the mess with correction, with comfort, and with sometimes surprising insight that makes new paths forward where we wouldn't have imagined them before. So friends, I stand here as a woman who has grown three human beings in my body, and I'm filled with immense gratitude for the gift of motherhood I've received and the miracle I felt come to pass through my body each time one of my children was nurtured and birthed. But I also am aware of how fortunate I am that all of my three pregnancies were uncomplicated, physically and emotionally. I know that my story, like the story of so many people born with uteruses could easily be very different. The truth of our fragile humanity means that things happen that we don't plan for or intend. Our plans fail. Violence has its way with us. Life doesn't develop in health. And if there is a loving force at the center of the universe, a divine heart that cares about our flourishing, 
then I have to believe that when we are faced with impossible choices we never planned for, that heart is with us and longs for us to feel freedom, to listen to our wisdom, to attend to our bodies, to choose wisely and well. I do not believe that heart is constraining our choices, but inviting us to be present to all the complexity of what is before us and in faith discern our best way forward. I believe that this is the most kind of sacred space there is. That safe place where a creature can connect with their loving creator and feel that caring heart's support as they co-create a future together, however that looks. And I feel compelled to vocally protect that space and every person who needs it. I feel compelled to do so with a voice of faith stemming from the Christian tradition because I believe our God gives us agency and free will and trusts us with choices. As a spiritual leader with a uterus herself who is called to the ministry of presence, I feel compelled to defend the sacredness of choice and to do all that I can to support those doing the deep heart work of discernment, including discerning whether or not to carry forward a pregnancy. I feel compelled to protect the decisions that those moments of discernment yield. And when called upon to provide the ministry of presence, as well as any practical support that may be needed to see those sacred decisions accomplished as safely as possible, I feel compelled to show up. Might I, a female pastor, leading an inclusive church be here in this post-row moment for such a time as this. Might communities like Haven that cultivate even an openness to the space I have just named need to exist for such a time as this. Communities that can offer an alternative view of what it means to live into life-giving connection with the divine, especially in moments when the world seems to be falling apart. Friends, I'm here again. I've returned to this work, both scared, terrified in some ways, and excited for what's to come because of this renewed sense of purpose, because these questions draw me forward as much as they ever have. Might the work of creating places that are committed to, to cultivating safety and honoring diversity and centering in the Jesus tradition be more needed today and whatever is coming next than they ever have before? Might the work not be accomplished, but actually only just beginning? Might our little community persist because we and others like us are meant for such a time as this. As we end, I want to invite you to ponder where that question might resonate for you. 
Where do you sense a pull to ponder if your own gifts and talents, your own circumstances, your heart stirrings, your own journey, your story might also be an invitation to a greater purpose? Maybe it's the purpose I'm naming of Haven. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's both and. But look at your life, your worth, your family, your community engagement. And I invite you to allow God to highlight for you where their presence might encourage you to ponder a greater purpose. What's the life-giving, restorative work you can participate in? Might you be here for such a time as this? Might you be here for such a time as this? May we all discover and return to places of purpose. And may we see the signs of restoration and healing in the world around us as we do. Amen. Amen. I want to take a moment and pray for us before we transition into conversation or worship. And as I do, I also just want to acknowledge that I, I do feel the weight of what has been shared in this space. And I, also, and I know and I assume that there's a variety of experiences and feelings happening right now. But I want to name and affirm that I trust the divine in each of you to be speaking to you about what resonates for you. What are you called to? How are you called to embody your own faith, your own journey? And I give permission for that to look different than me. So God, I thank you for the ways that you are stirring. And I believe that sometimes it's in the discomfort that we feel the most connection to something deeper. And so would you be in the stirring, whether that's the stirring of relief or the stirring of fear, whether it's the stirring of excitement or the stirring of, of like deep discomfort, May we sense you in the stirring, and may we have the wisdom and the faith to follow you until we find the places of safety, the places of understanding within us, until we find our space with you. And that invitation you're offering to each of us to live into our own for such a time as this. Amen.